Thank you. Good morning. How's everybody? Good deal. Good deal. And uh, thank you, Sam, for the kind words. No pressure, right? So no pressure at all. But it really is, uh, it really is great to, to be here this morning and to, with you, uh, position ourselves at the feet of God's word to see uh, what he would say to us. And I think by now we, we all know that God will not disappoint because his word is excellent, it's perfect, it's powerful, it's pure, uh, it's precious, and every other positive P you could think of. Um, it has everything that we need to know him excellently. It has everything we need to, to be all that he would have us to be and do all that he would have us to do. Uh, his spirit that indwells us is powerful. And that is how we are able to do whatever it is that he would have us to do and be who you have us to be. All those things being said, let's pray. And then we're going to get into the book and, and see exactly what God has for us today. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the indwelling of your Holy Ghost that is in us and you know, God, this morning, you know, it's, this is a privilege. It, it really is to, to stand in this position before this great people. And God, in my flesh, there's a, a part of me that wants to think that there's a measure of pressure on me. There really isn't because I can't improve upon perfection. <laughs> and that's not what you're asking. You're just asking for me to be obedient and submissive to what it is that you would look to accomplish this morning through your word with your people. And so, God, I'm just thankful that I get to be a part of it and to hear what, what we're all going to hear from you today. And, God, I just ask that as we listen this morning and as you speak into our hearts, that, God, we be very bold and very frank in our response. That, God, we would not procrastinate or excuse but that, God, by your grace, we would get to work with respect to what you've shown us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So in short, what the prophet Jeremiah was to the southern kingdom of Judah, the prophet Hosea was to the northern kingdom of Israel. In the book of Hosea, we come face to face with the fact that God is not absent of emotion or feeling. Let's say it this way because I think subconsciously many of us view God in this context. We view God as a thing, right? He's, he's stoic, right? He's, 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 he really can't identify with us on a personal level. And so at the highest level, what God wants us to know as we read through the book of Hosea is that sin is simply not just a legality with him. It's not a technicality. It's not just uh, some mental note that he makes in his mind with respect to us and sin. And in particular, he wants us to know that sin, without a doubt, it breaks his heart. Sin grieves God. It does. And in particular, the sin of spiritual adultery 
grieves him to his deepest core. He is careful to show us that the heartache and grief that you or I would experience as a spouse being hurt by the act of adultery is what he feels when a believer is also unfaithful to him. God, too, identifies with that. When you and I, although God said, you have no other gods before me, and we ignore that and say, I will, God says, that hurts me. And his people, Israel, referred to often in Hosea as Ephraim, is referred to as a whore that has shattered the very heart of God. And she is as dead set on loving her holotry and loving her whoredoms, plural. She is as determined and is as passionate about that as God is about loving her. And so to give Israel a literal picture of her spiritual condition, God commands his servant Hosea to take a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And Hosea obeyed God, which is how you and I need to serve him and how it's what God desires and that whatever God speaks, whatever God commands of us, we simply obey, logical or illogical, comfortable, uncomfortable. Whatever God says is what we do. Hosea would be able to identify with God and what it means to faithfully love someone, to only have them respond in gross unfaithfulness to you. So like God, Hosea would take a bride out of paganism, make her his own to only have her leave him and return to her horse ways. And like God, because he is love, Hosea would go and purchase his bride back out of sin. Hosea chapter 3. Big picture, the theme of the book is the ultimate salvation and restoration of the nation of Israel. The name Hosea means salvation. The name Jezreel means God scatters, but God also sows. It has a double meaning Chapter 1, you see that. But because of her unrepentant state, Israel would fall to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., while Judah would later fall to the Babylonians. Through both, Israel was scattered. But the day of Jezreel, the Bible says, will be great. It is the day that Israel and Judah will be sold, restored, back to God under one head Chapter 1, verse 11, the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. The book in and of itself is one of the most visual books that you will ever read in your Bible. God is giving us visuals of himself. He's giving us visuals of his people all throughout the book. And so as you read through the book, you'll see several similes and metaphors because God wants you to get this. God wants you to have a clear picture of his heart. God wants you to have a clear picture of what happens when sin grieves his heart. And God wants us to make sure we have a very clear picture of what happens when we do not repent of that. 
A simile is a figure of speech that shows the similarities between two different things. You can clearly see that by the words like or as, whereas a metaphor, on the other hand, uses words and phrases that are usually applied to something else, such as last year at camp, it was a sauna. Right? That's a metaphor. Isn't it amazing how, I mean, I was sitting there, I was fine, I get up here and I get dry mouth. Anybody ever? It's weird. So, and Lori gives me this very feminine, every woman water bottle. So let me cover it up, every man. <laughs> so, but she knows I'm a man, right? <laughs> uh, let me also say too, I feel like I am always in her shadow. My wife has become famous through LFBI. And people go, oh, Lori Morgan, you're her husband? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, I'm cool. I can, I can handle it. So, <laughs> But God uses these similes and metaphors to not only give us a visual of the condition of his people, but he uses them almost like a husband who's been seriously wounded by an unfaithful bride in the worst way. And this is, we see this, we, we, we get an introduction to this in chapter 4 and verse 1, where God begins to make his case, so to speak. Chapter 4 of Hosea, verse 1. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. And so this word controversy, it's a, it's a legal term, and it means to contest. So from here, God moves forward to prove his case against his people by giving us a very clear visual. Now, we can't see all of them. There are several. But with respect to the ones that we are going to look at, there are three specific questions that I believe God would have us to consider this morning objectively and deal with and respond to. But let's start in verse 16 as we look at this simile this morning as we get underway. He says, for Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. So the heifer, the, the young cow, would, would essentially throw the yoke off. And instead of going forward, they would go backwards. God says, this is exactly what my people are like. God is saying, my heart is to yoke them into a faithful, loving relationship with me. I want them to, to move forward. I, I want them to, to, to always be coming toward me, to, to grow in a loving, faithful relationship, but they keep sliding back. They, they keep rejecting the invitation. They keep throwing the yoke off, and they keep going back. They slide back like a heifer. As a matter of fact, we are told exactly what they thought about it in chapter 11, very quickly in verse 7.
And my people, listen, guys, this is one of the most sober verses in all of the word of God from my vantage point, at least it is in my life. And I pray to the Lord that this is never said of me and it's never said of my wife or my children and you as well. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they call them to the most high, none at all would exalt him. My people are bent to backsliding. As much as God desired for his people to know and love him, they desired to go away from him with a fierce determination. And notice how personal this is. They're not just backsliding. They're backsliding from me. You see, I want them, but they don't want me. I want them to come to me. I want them to be with me. I want them to know me. I want them to experience my love, and I want to experience theirs to me, but they're saying, no, thank you. As a matter of fact, it's not even that polite. They're saying, get lost, not interested. Don't miss it now, because this is what God is trying to convey to you and I this morning. Because the grief and the anguish that you would feel if your child decided one day that regardless of how much you love them, regardless of how much you've done for them, regardless of how much you are willing to do for them, their response is, I want nothing to do with you. The agony, the grief, the pain that you would feel is exactly what God feels when you are bent to backsliding. This is exactly where God is in Hosea, and it's exactly where he is today when someone that he has claimed as his own says, God, I am totally disinterested. And for the record, we can make such a choice, and God pleads for our repentance, but at some point, like Israel, as a lamb was fed to a large place, a reference to her fall, we too will experience the fruit of what comes from being bent to backsliding. So here's the thing. Free will is great, but understand it's a two-way street. You have a free will, and so does God. So just as you and I make our choices, God is free to now make his choice in response to our choice. And God did that. God will heal Israel's backsliding, chapter 14, verse 4, but that healing will come at a very severe price. So here's the first question for consideration this morning. What is the direction of your bent? What is the direction of your bent? 
Is it to God or is it away from God? What is your directional bent? Moving on, chapter four or chapter six. Verse 4, O Ephraim, again, that's a reference to the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. What shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goeth away. We see the heaviness in God's heart over the condition of his people. You can reference chapter 11, verse 8, where God once again is agonizing and he's pouring his heart out because he is so grieved over the condition of his people. But verse 4 is a direct contrast to what we see in the first three verses where we see in those first three verses that God's faithfulness is long and lasting. But painfully, the same cannot be said about his people. When it came to faithfulness, Israel was clearly a sprinter not a marathon runner. God likens her goodness to a morning cloud and the early dew. The point is, both are very short-lived. This morning we got up and we got into the car and there was a, a dew over the windshield. By the time we got here, it was gone. God says, this is exactly what my people are like. The word goodness in verse 4 is also translated in the Old Testament as mercy Kindness, loving kindness, to name a few. And in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we understand that one of the things that God has, one of the, the controversies that God had with them was there was no mercy in the land. There was no kindness, and there was only killing and stealing, and blood toucheth blood, it says in verse 2. So God says their goodness is similar to a morning cloud in the early dew. God's faithfulness, on the other hand, is anything but a morning cloud or an early dew. It is said of God in Psalm 121, verse 4, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Even though God has put distance between himself and Israel, God is still watching over her, and that's crystal clear. We see that. He never takes his eyes off of Israel, and he does not take his eyes off of you if you belong to him. But for some believers, Sunday morning or perhaps all church retreat is nothing more than a morning cloud or an early dew. For two hours or four days, we're all in with God and for God, but the problem is it's not going to last very long. Some are doing better than that in that they do read their daily bread every morning, but the problem is it's just a quiet time thing. We do that, but there'll be no significant interaction with God throughout the day will catch up with him again in 24 hours. In those early years of our marriage, Lori used to ask me a question on somewhat of a regular basis when I would get home every day. Did you think about me today? 
yeah, I sure did. Yep, I absolutely thought about you. Please don't press. <laughs> Please don't ask me to qualify or justify my answer because I'm not sure what you're looking for. But I did think about you today. She hasn't asked anymore. So I don't know if she just assumes that I am or she's just lost hope. <laughs> you have to ask her. I'm not sure. But what she wanted to know was if she still preoccupied my heart and my mind, even though we were not in the same physical space. I mean, do you only think about me when we're in this same space and then once you go off to work or you go do this or do that, then I'm out of the picture. Now hear me. I am not likening God to a woman. But what I am saying is what I believe the Bible is saying in Psalm 146, verse 2, and you need to look at this. Psalm 146, verse 2, let's get eyes on it very quickly. That is a nice bottle, by the way. Very nice. Nice job, Harvest Blue Springs. So. Psalm 146, verse 2. This is, this verse squeezes my heart, and it should squeeze yours. Verse 2, while I live, while I praise the Lord, I will sing praises unto my God while I have any being. While I live, while I have any being. I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises unto my God. Listen, we have amazing people who lead us so very well on a regular basis in praise and worship to our God. Amen? I mean, I'm sure you've been blessed already by the praise and worship ministry of the people up here who are leading us. Thank you. Um, I know at Midtown every week, I, I just, my anticipation for the praise and worship is as high as it is for the preaching because it's awesome. Praise God. But please hear me. Please hear this. We make the statement of statements to God. When the only time he hears us sing praises to him is in settings like this. God gets a massive message in that. Our praise and worship becomes like the morning cloud in the early dew. Even though the Bible says that God is great, God is good, God is awesome, God is mighty, God is merciful, God is loving, God is righteous, God is gracious, God is majestic, God is wonderful, God is holy, God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, God is beyond anything my mind, your mind can think of, but yet we say, here's what that means, you get 20 minutes a week. 
You got 20 minutes. And if you go on Tuesday nights or Wednesdays at harvest, maybe you get 40. You got 20 minutes. 40 max. Parents, what are we teaching our children about the greatness of God? If the only time they ever hear or see us sing praise to him is in this setting. They never hear us sing praise to God in the car. They never hear us sing praise to God at home. The psalmist said, while I live, while I have being. Well, I'm living when I'm in the car. I'm living when I'm at home. I'm living when I'm at work. I'm, I have being right now. You with me? It's a very sober thought, isn't it? It's also very convicting. We have in this room some of the greatest teachers that the world could ever know. And I am so very proud to stand here this morning and say that the men that God used to rear me up in the Lord and form me are in this room. So let me just tell you, not only is that humbling, it's also terrifying, <laughs> all right, to stand before these guys who, I mean, man, they had direct <laughs> love and care, and they changed a few diapers <laughs> along the way. <laughs> and um, I thank God for those men. So let me just say that anything that you have deemed erroneous or heretical and what you've heard this morning, you can blame them. <laughs> it's on them. But as great as they were and as great as they are in breaking out the word of God to us faithfully, we can be and we should be as excited about the book when we are not in their direct presence. Psalm 119.97, you know it. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And as it is true in the case of praise and worship, we also show the true colors of our heart when the only time we're really interested or excited about the Bible is in settings like this. It takes this to stoke the fires of our heart, to, to really be interested and, and excited and passionate about the book. We, we need somebody else to, to, to tickle our heart and, and, and show us something cool. And listen, I'm not demeaning anything we're doing this week or anything we'll do Sunday or Tuesday or Wednesday. Praise the Lord for that. But apart from that, there's no fire for the book. And in the age of meteor pastors, some Christians, and please brace yourself, go a-whoring after pastors online. By the way, you can get good teaching online, but you can't get a pastor online. Just FYI. God uses good men, and I am not knocking that or saying that you should not podcast someone that God uses in your life. But what I am saying 
is that if, and what I am saying is this, if you cannot get as excited at five o'clock in the morning at your kitchen table with your Bible and the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, you are spiritually sick. That's what I am saying. Listen, I love, listen, I thank God for the teaching ministry of Sam, for Chris, for Dan, for Brandon and Will and Mark Trotter and Alan. Alan's like, I call Alan, he's like the godfather, right? <laughs> Alan's like, you know, he's the godfather. Is Alan in the house? I haven't seen him. Alan, are you here? Okay. All right. He's, isn't he like the godfather? <laughs> Need to pray for the godfather? Okay. All right. But he's like the godfather. Anybody with me on that? Okay. So here's the second question. When it comes to faithfulness, are you a sprinter or a marathon runner? That's the second question. Are you a sprinter or are you a marathon runner? You know, a sprinter is very impressive for 40 yards, isn't he, or she? But there's not much left after that, is there? All right, chapter 7. Sam, am I okay on time, sir? Okay. In 10 minutes? Okay, I'm... I'm Coming down the stretch. Yes. Okay, sprint, I got you. Okay. <laughs> so is that your way of answering the question for me? I'm a sprinter? <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> All right, that being said, chapter 7, and let me just tell you, it's with agony that we go to verse 8 because verses 1 through 7, we could spend the entire week uh, just in chapter 7 alone, but, but verse 8, he says, Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. In this metaphor, Ephraim is compared to a cake not turned. If I could say, my wife can really handle her business in the kitchen around the griddle with some pancakes. The girl can jam. All right, I'm telling you, she, can, she knows what she's doing. I mean, man, they're perfect. They're around the, around the edges. They're, they have like a crusty ring. <sighs> yes. <laughs> but fluffy and moist. I mean, it's just heaven on a plate, man. And uh, sometimes when I guess I've been really good, I'll get bananas and chocolate chips it's the real deal, man. I hop, forget it. All right? But I noticed that she always does something every time. She, she does the batter, and then she, she, she puts it on the griddle, and she watches it. She's multitasking. Women are amazing. I mean, she can be watching the pancakes on the phone, loading the dishwasher, combing Bree's hair. Unbelievable. But somehow, at some point, what she's going to do is she's going to take that pancake and she's going to turn it to the other side. Now, on occasion, because she is human, 
In the event that she gets too preoccupied with her multitasking and allows one of those pancakes to go too long, that pancake is rendered useless and it is discarded to the garbage. Because at that point, it's of no value whatsoever. So when God says that Ephraim is a cake not turned, what he's saying is they are totally useless to me. They are totally useless. They offer me nothing. There is no glory for me to get out of their lives. They are useless and they're about to be discarded. Now, let's justify that a little further in chapter 10 as I sprint. Chapter 10, verse 1, we see another metaphor. He bringeth, verse 1, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself according to the multitude of his fruit. He hath increased the altars according to the goodness of his land. They have made goodly images. Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. So let's think about it because here's what we've got to understand. The name Ephraim, here's what it means. It means doubly fruitful. So that tells you exactly what God had in mind. How is it that God is glorified according to John 15, 8? By the bearing of how much fruit? Much fruit. Doubly fruitful. It's what God was after then, and it's what he's after now. So Ephraim was to be, should have been doubly fruitful for God. There was to be an overflow from their life to God where God says, amen. Yes. Yes. It was anything but that. Instead, he was doubly fruitful in idolatry. How did that happen and why does it happen? The answer is found here in verse 2, but it's also found back in chapter 7. We'll go back there in just a minute. But in verse 2, it says, their heart is divided. Uh, they were halting between two opinions, 1 Kings eighteen twenty one. They were divided in heart and they were double-minded, James 4, 8. So back in chapter 7, we see very clearly what fueled that. Chapter 7 and verse 8, we see that Ephraim, it says, has mixed himself among the people. Back in 2 Kings 15 through 17, we see the alliance and the mixing with the nations. And when we mix ourselves with the people of this world, we become unaware of what's actually happening to us. Look at verse 9. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. He knoweth it not. He knoweth it not. 
You see, once you mix yourself with the world, you can go so far from God for so long and not even realize what's happened to you. Not even realize the damage that's been done and is being done. And one of the ways that you can always tell that this has happened or is happening is by what God says very clearly in chapter 8, verse 12, as we come down the stretch here. He says this, and guys, please hang on to this because, again, may it never be said of you or me, but chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I have written to him, to Ephraim, the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. God's people had fallen so hard for so long into sin that God's word was considered strange. Did you know that you can get so far from God for so long that you can actually look right into the word of God and say, God, you must be out of your mind if you expect that of me. You must be crazy if you expect me to think, speak, and live like that as a husband. God, you must be insane if you expect me to take your word at face value and be that kind of wife. God, are you crazy that, that you think that, that I should move out from living with this man or this woman who's not my spouse? You must be out of your mind. You must be crazy. You can get there. You can get there. Where the very word of God is strange. Happens. Ultimately, this is what we have to understand. God is so zealous about fruit that brings him glory that if our lives are not producing it, then essentially, and this is almost blasphemous in the American church in 2016, what I'm about to say, as far as God is concerned, we are good for nothing. Oh, no, you, you can't say that God would. Listen to John 15, 6. If a man abide not in me, He is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. To be clear, this passage is not a reference to a believer losing their salvation. How do we know? Because it clearly says, and men, not God, gather them. We're not talking about that. What is being clearly communicated is that the believer who is not abiding in Christ, which means they are not bearing much fruit to God, is good for absolutely zilch. They're a cake not turned. They're an empty vine. Hard to say, hard to swallow, but it is true nonetheless. The third and final question as we close is, are you useful or useless to God? Are you useful 
or are you useless to God? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the clarity, the precision, and the power of your word. God, we know that when it goes forth, it will not return void. So God, whatever it is that you have said to us today, however you have dealt with us today, God, again, whatever you said last night, whatever you're going to say the rest of today and tonight and the time that we have together, God, let us not be irresponsible with that and let any of it fall to the ground. However, we need to respond to you. God, let us do that for your glory. In Jesus' name.